You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. What does Sputnik have to do with student loans? How did a set of trembling hands end the Soviet Union? How did inflation kill moon bases? And how did a former president decide to run for a second non-consecutive term? These are among the topics we deal with on the My History Can Beat Up Your Politics podcast. We tell stories of history that relate to today's news events. Give a listen. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics wherever you get podcasts. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. This week, episode 263, The Hartford Conference. Back in episode 257, I talked about the arrival of the French army in America. General Jean-Baptiste Donation de Vermeer, the Comte de Rochambeau, led an army of about 5,500 soldiers. With them were seven ships of the line and five smaller frigates under the command of Admiral Charles-Henri-Louis de Orsac, the Chevalier de Ternay. Upon arrival, much of the army and navy was sick from the journey, and they also had to scramble to build a defensible position at Rhode Island. Now, the French had come to America with far fewer soldiers than originally planned. There were not enough ships to transport all of the soldiers that Rochambeau expected to bring with him. He had to cram in 5,500 soldiers onto 36 transports, leaving behind much of his equipment, horses, and another 2,500 soldiers. Those who could not get on the ships remained in Brest, waiting for transport ships to carry them to America. And more importantly, Rochambeau wanted a larger naval French presence to gain superiority of the seas. As long as the British controlled the water off their coast, the French army was little more than a supplement to the Continentals. The French naval priorities, however, remained elsewhere. With only seven ships of the line, the French had enough to defend against a British naval attack on Newport, but couldn't really go on the offensive. Recall that Admiral d'Estaing had commanded a French fleet in America for two years prior. He had spent most of it in the West Indies. Admiral d'Estaing had bailed out of a joint assault on British-occupied Newport in 1778 after a storm wrecked most of his fleet. He then spent months in Boston getting repairs. After that, he sailed his fleet back to the West Indies, where he failed to prevent the British from capturing St. Lucia. After receiving more ships under the Comte de Grasse, D'Estaing captured St. Vincent and Grenada. He sailed north to Savannah, hoping to assist the Americans in retaking that town from the British. The attack failed, and D'Estaing returned once again to the West Indies. In March of 1780, D'Estaing returned to France still recovering from the wounds he received at Savannah. Command of the fleet in the West Indies fell to Luc Urbain de Buxet, the Comte de Guichin. The admiral was in his late sixties. I won't go into his lengthy record, but he was an experienced officer with a long record going back to the War of Austrian Succession and the Seven Years' War. He had been commander of the Channel Fleet in 1778 and 79, before heading to the West Indies, with a squadron of ships to reinforce the French presence there. In April, shortly after his arrival, Huishin went on the offensive, taking a fleet of 23 ships of the line and 3,000 soldiers in hopes of capturing British-held Jamaica. Britain had also recently replaced its commander in the West Indies, Admiral George Bridges Rodney, 
who I discussed when he led the relief of Gibraltar back in episode 243, assumed command of the West Indies fleet. Admiral Rodney was alerted immediately to the French fleet under Guijin taking to sea and sent his own fleet of 20 ships of the line to intercept them. On April 17th, the two ships made contact and spent a few hours jockeying for position. Rodney had hoped to take advantage of Guichin's position, which had left the French fleet strung out in a fairly loose formation. Robert Carquette, commander of the lead British ship, the Stirling Castle, ignored instructions and simply charged directly at the French fleet. The other British commanders followed him into battle. Another French officer, the third in command, Comte de Grasse, managed to get most of the French fleet into a tighter position and fight off the attack. No ships were lost in the battle, which took place off the coast of Martinique, and the battle was generally considered a draw. But the French suffered 222 killed and 537 wounded in the fierce fighting that day. The British suffered 120 killed and 354 wounded. A month later, the two fleets engaged again over several days between May 15th and May 20th. The fighting was once again indecisive. By July, with hurricane season approaching, Admiral Guichin left the West Indies, taking the bulk of his fleet back to France. British Admiral Rodney took the bulk of the British fleet up to New York to assist with the effort there. It's not really clear to me why Guichin did not sail up to Newport to assist Rochambeau, but whatever his motivation, he made no attempt to support the French expeditionary force in New England. French priorities were very clearly in the West Indies as far as their concerns about the Western Hemisphere fighting. Meanwhile, General Rochambeau had arrived in Newport in July and was desperately short-handed. His immediate concern, as I said, was a British attack just after his arrival. When the immediate threat of an attack dissipated, the French settled in to await the arrival of their reinforcements and an opportunity to attack. While the British Navy was unwilling to attack Newport, British ships of the line remained off the coast, keeping the French Navy bottled up in Newport Harbor. Rochambeau came to realize that no additional support seemed to be on its way anytime soon, and that he had to plan to make do with what he had for the foreseeable future. The French army made a good impression on the locals, paying hard money for everything they needed. A local populace, who was used to being looted and robbed by both the enemy and the desperate Continentals, was pleasantly surprised by French soldiers who did not steal their chickens or strip their orchards, but rather paid for rations with gold and silver. The French rented buildings, which they repaired at their own expense. The officers rented rooms in the finest homes in Newport, and soon intermingled with local society. If anything, the French army was even more stratified between nobles and commoners than the British army. France required that a commissioned officer had to have at least four generations of nobility in his family tree. Even wealthy commoners could not become officers, except through the very rare instance of promotion through the ranks. The enlisted men came from the poorest of the poor in France. Even so, the effective military discipline and good provisioning by the quartermaster kept most of Rochambeau's soldiers from engaging in the looting and theft that plagued most other armies. Because the British had destroyed many of the homes in Newport, 
Rochambeau made arrangements to have his soldiers repair and rebuild the homes at French expense. In compensation, the owners would allow the soldiers to live in the homes rent-free during the time of French occupation. This was a win-win since it permitted the French soldiers to obtain free housing, while the American owners had their ruined properties restored and would receive them back when the French departed. The discipline and good behavior of the French soon won over the locals. Just to be sure, Rochambeau forbade his army from holding Catholic masses out in public in the anti-Papist New England, and issued orders that the soldiers not try to attend Protestant services. The French also spread out their army, setting soldiers not just in Newport, but also in Providence and Papasquash, where they established hospitals for their sick and wounded. The illness from poor food and conditions during the sea voyage continued to take its toll. About 30 soldiers died of disease during the voyage from France, another 18 died in July, in the two weeks after the army landed, and by the end of the year, 265 French soldiers had died from disease, most the result of conditions suffered on the voyage across the Atlantic. As I said, Rochambeau maintained tight discipline. Not only was the smallest theft punished harshly with floggings, officers were even forbidden from hunting during the harvest period to prevent any potential disruptions. When soldiers did go riding, they were ordered to respect fenced land and remain on public paths. Soldiers were held in isolated camps and needed a pass to go into town. Even then, they had to be accompanied by a non-commissioned officer who was responsible for their behavior. Fraternization was so strictly blocked that there are no records of venereal diseases or unexpected pregnancies caused by French soldiers. Now, French officers, on the contrary, did mingle with the locals, but remained on best behavior. They lived with local families and encouraged social gatherings. Rochambeau's prohibition on sexual relationships seems to have kept the officers from engaging in any such attempts. Even officers who had reputations in Europe, both before and after Newport, managed to keep it in their pants while in Rhode Island. One of Rochambeau's top officers, the Duc de Lausen, had multiple affairs in Europe. He was billeted with a young widow and her three daughters in Newport. The ladies later noted that they grew quite fond of him, but that he never acted inappropriately and always treated them as if they were his own sisters. Now, there were, of course, some isolated incidents. A French corporal killed an American in August, and he was rather quickly tried and shot by a firing squad. French payment in specie for everything they needed made them even more popular with the locals. It got to the point where the Continentals had to send aides with French purchasing agents to prevent locals from overcharging them. The only ones complaining were the American purchasing agents who could not compete with the French buyers. Several dozen French soldiers attempted to desert in 1780 while in Newport. In hopes of maintaining good relations, the Americans passed laws treating French deserters the same as American deserters to be returned to their units to face punishment. As it turned out, it was not the enemy, but boredom, that would become the primary concern for Rochambeau's first year in America. The Continentals were in no condition to go on the offensive, and the British seemed content to keep the French bottled up in Newport. It would be several months before Rochambeau and Washington would even meet. For most of the spring and summer, Washington was trying, unsuccessfully, 
to get the Congress to provide him with the men and supplies he needed for an offensive. Making the five-day trip to Newport would have taken Washington out of contact with Congress for several weeks, at a time when negotiations over everything were pretty intense. Washington was also probably reluctant to meet with Rochambeau and admit that he lacked the men and resources to do much of anything. Instead, Washington relied on General Lafayette to serve as a go-between for the two armies. Lafayette used the opportunity to try to get Rochambeau to launch an offensive against New York with the army that Lafayette had originally hoped to command himself. In late July, Lafayette wrote to Washington that the French army was eager to go on the offensive, that they, quote, detest even the thought of remaining in Newport and are burning with the desire of joining you. They curse anyone who talks to them of waiting for a second division and are furious at remaining blockaded here. At the same time, Lafayette was pressing Rochambeau to launch an immediate offensive against the British New York. Rochambeau thought this plan was foolhardy. He complained to French Minister Luzerne that Lafayette was trying to dictate an extremely risky strategy, and although Lafayette was representing General Washington, it really is not clear that even General Washington approved of Lafayette's plans. A frustrated Rochambeau finally wrote a letter to Lafayette, essentially saying that the young and inexperienced officer would not become a successful and experienced officer if he tried to lead an army on a highly risky attack that could result in the destruction of that army. He indirectly accused Lafayette of trying to satisfy his personal ambition by putting the lives of French soldiers at great risk. Lafayette could have taken great offense at the letter, but decided to back off and accept General Rochambeau's experience-backed advice. From Rochambeau's perspective, He had landed in a strange country, had his small navy bottled up and unable to move, had a third of his army still in France awaiting transport, had not even met with the American commander after nearly two months in America, and was getting all of this strategic advice from Lafayette, an officer with almost no experience and still in his early 20s. No experienced officer in his right mind would launch an offensive against a superior enemy in those circumstances. And certainly, before anything could happen, Rochambeau needed to meet and confer with General Washington in person. It certainly didn't help when word reached both Rochambeau and Washington that the Americans suffered the loss of a Continental Army in the South, this time the one under Gates at Camden. This further threatened American claims of independence in the southern states, and put even greater demands on Washington to send a third army to the south. Doing so would mean his depleted army in the north would get even smaller. Also, news that French General de Cobb, who had joined the Continental Army, was killed in the battle at Camden. That certainly did nothing to inspire the French. By September, Rochambeau had been in Newport, as I said, for nearly two months, and had still not met with Washington. He was fed up with communicating through Lafayette, who Rochambeau still thought was trying to set his own agenda. Washington finally agreed to meet with Rochambeau in Hartford, Connecticut, about halfway between the French and Continental camps. As I said, Washington had been reluctant to meet because he was focused on building up his own army after its decimation during the previous winter at Morristown. He had only a few thousand Continentals under arms, and most of his attention over the summer was writing to Congress and to various state leaders trying to impress upon them 
how important it was to send him soldiers and supplies so that he could make use of the newly arrived French army to launch an offensive. Until the Continental Army reached a respectable size, Washington would not be able to convince the French to join him in any offensive. Washington's headquarters at Morristown, as I said, was about a five-day ride from Newport. The American commander had no time to travel that distance and spend time conferring with the French commander, then returning to New Jersey, all during the summer fighting season when the British might launch another attack from New York against his tiny army. But finally, by September, Washington decided he could no longer put off a meeting with Rochambeau, and the two leaders agreed to meet at the halfway point in Hartford, Connecticut, which was about two and a half days' ride for each group. Traveling with Washington to Hartford was General Henry Knox, his chief of artillery, Lieutenant Colonel Jean-Baptiste de Gauvon, a French officer who had become Washington's chief of engineers, and of course General Lafayette. Also attending were several of Washington's aides, including Colonel Alexander Hamilton. General Rochambeau brought Admiral Ternay, several of his other top generals, and his son, the Vicomte de Rochambeau. The conference had been scheduled for September 20th, but the French delegation was late due to their coach breaking an axle during the trip. The leaders met at the home of Jeremiah Wadsworth. Wadsworth was a local merchant who had been a commissary for the Continental Army for a time and was friends with General Nathaniel Green, and he was currently serving as a local commissary for the French Army. The leaders finally sat down together on September 21st to discuss strategy. Washington was in the embarrassing position of not even knowing exactly how many soldiers he commanded at the moment, as the number was always changing. He also noted that a large portion of his army would have its enlistments expire at the end of the year. Even so, he managed to make a positive personal impression on the French officers. Rochambeau was still awaiting the second half of his expeditionary force to arrive. Ternay's naval fleet was still blockaded in Newport Harbor. They hoped, in vain, that the naval reinforcements under Admiral de Grasse might sail up from the West Indies. But until more French ships and soldiers arrived, the generals agreed that they did not have enough resources to launch a successful attack on New York City. The leaders agreed that they would need a combined army of 30,000 as well as naval superiority before they could seriously consider such an attack. At the time, it was not clear when, if ever, they would have those numbers. The entire Continental and French Expeditionary Army in America probably did not total 10,000 soldiers combined. The only thing that was clear was that there would not be a decisive battle in 1780. The armies would have to go into winter quarters. Washington would spend the winter in New Jersey, again. Rochambeau and his army would spend the winter in Newport. All Washington could do was ask Rochambeau to pass along more requests for more French soldiers and ships, and also to see if France could spare more money to help the Continentals keep going. Hopefully, France would fulfill these requests in time for a beginning of a fighting season in the spring of 1781. After two days of meetings, the leaders agreed that New York City should remain their goal, but at present they could do nothing. Rochambeau would send his son back to Versailles to beg for more money and supplies, Traveling with Rochambeau's son would be Colonel John Lawrence, who had recently been released from parole after his capture at Charleston. 
Washington would continue to beg Congress to come up with the resources that he needed. The meeting wrapped up rather quickly after word arrived that the British fleet under Admiral Romney had arrived in New York with 13 additional ships of the line. Rochambeau was concerned that this would mean a British attack on Newport was once again imminent, so he wanted to get back to his army as quickly as possible. On September 23rd, the two delegations returned to their camps. Rochambeau would end up spending an entire year in Newport with pretty much nothing to do. Washington headed back to New Jersey, but on his way back stopped off at West Point to meet with General Benedict Arnold. When he arrived, Arnold was nowhere to be found. But the reason for Arnold's absence will have to wait for next time. Next time, General Arnold decides to trade in his blue uniform for a nice shiny red one. This episode is supported by the food delivery service, Factor. It's spring now, and we all want to spend more time outdoors, enjoying life, not the kitchen. Factor ensures you have fresh, never-frozen, chef-crafted, dietitian approved meals that you can prepare in just two minutes. Each week, you get a menu of 35 meal options, as well as 60 add-ons, including breakfasts, on-the-go lunches, snacks, and beverages. You can customize your orders to get as much or as little as you want each week and can pause or make changes to your orders at any time. Factor is less expensive than takeout and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. It's the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, upscale options done easily. Now, they even have a special deal for fans of the American Revolution podcast. Head to factormeals.com ARP50 and use that code ARP50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next box. That's code ARP50 at factormeals.com slash ARP50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Hey, thanks for joining the American Revolution Podcast After Show. Thanks to my Patreon supporters in the Alexander Hamilton Club, George Davis, Mike Hager, and Michael Gaylord, and to Robert Morris Circle supporters Lee Seam, Michael Mulhern, and TJ Walker. Thanks also to new Privy Council member Steve Sudison, and to new standard bearers Sean Duffy, James Zaff, Phineas Jacob, Doug Campbell, and Luke Burns. Thanks also to Brianna Larson, who upgraded to standard bearer. Thanks also to Paul Kallenberger, Paul Newman, and Andy Cloyd for one-time gifts via PayPal or Venmo. I apologize if my voice was a little off today, especially in the main episode, which I recorded a few days earlier. I've been dealing with the flu for the last couple of weeks, and I'm still a little bit congested. I decided to go ahead and record in order to keep on schedule, even if my voice is not 100%. Hopefully the combination of drugs and editing will make it at least passable. I also wanted to mention that my American Revolution Roundtable is holding Zoom-only events in January and February. As always, I will send Zoom links to anyone who cares to join us live for the event. Make sure you're signed up for my mailing list if you want to receive these invitations in the future. This month, on January 10th, 2023, we will be joined by author Christian McBurney. He will discuss the topic of his latest book, Dark Voyage, 
a look at privateer attacks on the slave trade during the war. Again, if you want to be a part of this event on January 10th at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, shoot me an email ahead of time and I will send you a Zoom link. So this week we stepped away from all the action in the South to check in with George Washington in New Jersey. As usual, Washington was desperately frustrated, but always outwardly keeping his cool. The arrival of the French army gave him an opportunity to deliver a death blow to the British in New York, but the states and the Continental Congress refused to give him the men and resources to finish the job. Fortunately, British General Clinton was also left without sufficient forces to go on the offensive, so while the war raged in the South, a frustrating standoff festered in the North. The Hartford Conference was the first meeting between the French and American military leaders, but again, because no one had enough soldiers, the meeting was more of a getting-to-know-you session than any sort of strategizing. To that extent, at least, the meeting seemed to go well, as both sides came away with positive first impressions of their fellow commanders. My book recommendation this week is Rochambeau, Washington's Ideal Lieutenant, by Jeannie Jones Vale. I suspect General Rochambeau would take offense at the title, since he would certainly not consider himself a lieutenant of General Washington. But I think the book does do a great job in focusing on the French efforts to support the Continentals in the final years of the war. Jones is an American with a lifelong passion for French history. She began writing books later in life. Her book on Rochambeau went straight to paperback in 2020, although there are also Kindle and audiobook versions. So, if interested, check out Rochambeau, Washington's Ideal Lieutenant. My online recommendation is an older public domain book called The French in America During the War of Independence of the United States, 1777-1783. It's a translation of a French book that focuses on the role of the French army in America. Thomas Balch translated this copy, which he published in 1891. Most of the book focuses on the Yorktown campaign, but there is considerable material on the events leading up to the campaign as well. As always, I've included links to the book at archive.org on my website and blog. My question this week asks, was the American Revolution inevitable, given the rising tensions between the colonies and Great Britain in the years leading up to it? Well, I don't think the American Revolution was inevitable, until after Parliament's passage of the Intolerable Acts of 1774. Up until then, the colonists were looking for reforms in how much the government in London could control them. If the King or Parliament had made a real effort at implementing an agreeable reform, the relationship between Britain and its American colonies could have prospered, perhaps for another century. The colonists were proud to be British colonists, they were proud to be part of the British Empire, and if the British Empire had reciprocated by respecting their rights, I think that relationship would have continued. But despite their mutual affection, the colonies were looking for a guarantee that they would not be subject to internal taxes by Parliament. The government in London wanted to come up with some way to raise revenue to cover the costs of protecting North America. Now, the two sides could have come up with a mutually agreeable policy if they had tried. The colonists believed that being part of the British Empire had value. It opened up trade with Britain. It ensured that colonies would have protection when another major power, like France or Spain, tried to take territory from them. 
most colonists believed that Britain was the best government among all those in the rest of the world and went the farthest in respecting individual rights. Most colonists also believed that there was little chance that they could defeat Britain militarily. The problem was really that British officials underestimated the military capacity and the resolve of the colonies. They believed that a show of force in the colonies would force them to back down. The passage of the Intolerable Acts led to armed resistance in Massachusetts, making violent conflict inevitable. Even so, after the battles of Lexington and Concord, London still had a final opportunity to avert full all-out war. The king could have accepted the 1774 petition from the First Continental Congress or the 1775 Olive Branch petition sent by the Second Continental Congress. He could have then declared that things had gotten out of hand, called for a convention to discuss a solution that would respect the rights of the colonies over taxation without representation, while at the same time establishing a revenue source to cover the military and governing costs of the colonies. However, still believing that the colonies would back down, in late 1775, the king called for a larger army to go to America and crush the rebellion. It was that which really pushed the colonies into seeking full independence. By that time, they were so far in that backing down would mean terrible punishments for the leader of the protests. So even if leaders thought that victory was unlikely, they really had no choice but to try at that point. So I think the king or parliament could have steered away from the war if they acted differently. Kings are successful because they know when to share power and wealth and when to crush opposition. In this case, they misjudged just how powerful the colonies had become, and they opted to crush opposition rather than share a bit more power and wealth. Even if they did avert the revolution at the time, I think independence was probably inevitable at some point. The colonies were growing too large and powerful to be ruled by a smaller power forever. And Britain would never cede so much power that it would become a minority in its own empire. If the revolution had been averted, another issue might have caused the necessary division that led to independence. This might have been the Napoleonic Wars, if they had still happened, or perhaps the issue of slavery. At some point, however, Britain would have to grant virtual independence perhaps maintaining a nominal place in the government as it has with places like Canada or Australia. If you have a question you would like me to answer, please reach out to me either via email or on Twitter, Facebook, or Quora. Well, that's all for this time. I hope you will join me again next time for another American Revolution podcast. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts.